Hi there, and welcome to my Fashion Stories Box podcast, a podcast about stories in fashion history. I am Catherine, and I am so glad to welcome you here. Let's discover together interesting facts about fashion and history, and fashion history. This year, I started to do researches around my local clothing heritage. I am from the Touraine region, located in the administrative center of France, one hour southwest by, from Paris by fast train. A region better known for its wine, castles, and the Loire River than for its fashion or strong traditional costume. Though it used to be an important silk center, and in my hometown we used to make leather and to produce buttons at the beginning of the 20th century. The only specific item we have is what we call la coiffe tourangelle, or le bonnet tourangeau, a beautiful and delicate headpiece made of very thin fabrics and richly decorated embroideries and lace that countryside women used to wear to go out, but I might end up doing a dedicated episode for these bonnets. And I am quite lucky to have some beautiful specimens at home from my grandmother. So. In the optic to reappropriate my own culture, in a sense, I decided to have a closer look at this headpiece and at the know-how behind it. I knew about the special embroidery used, the Vouvray embroidery, also known as the white embroidery, and I decided to learn more about the techniques, to try at my level to preserve this know-how. And after some good researches, I found the website of Souline Dupuis, registered for an intensive week of embroidery slash lace, and arrived to the first day with a small collection of bonnets. After discussing my project, I ended up starting learning lace, and I absolutely loved it. After two days, I got so passionate by the topic that I decided to learn more about the story of lace, and of course, to do a podcast episode. So in this episode... We will discover more about the origins of lace, the two beautiful legends surrounding the birth of lace. We will define what is lace, how it is made, the many techniques used and the many names for laces. We will also read some abstract from the notebook of Anna, a young 14-year-old girl living in the French city of Meteren and who was learning the beautiful art of lace in 1924. We will see the different usage lace had over time, why it was and still is a luxury fashion houses don't hesitate to incorporate in their creations. And I will, of course, tell you everything about my own experience of learning lace with Soline and the even bigger respect I grew for all the small hands of the fashion industry. Let's go! The origins of the lace are quite mysterious. Some sources mention examples from ancient Egypt as seen sometimes in the decoration of sarcophagus or thanks to some fragments found in the archaeological digs. But as we don't have much remains contrary to embroidery, it's still difficult to precisely date the first laces in human history. And before we dive in the legends surrounding lace, let's define what is lace? Lace is a special type of fabrics done with threads weaved in a certain way. If we look at the definition young Anna gives us in her notebook from 1924, lace is, quote, 
a fabric with a transparent or openwork background entirely created by the work of the lace maker, either with a thread conducted by a needle or with several threads braided together by using bobbins. Unquote. This definition helps us to understand that there are two types of lace, the needle lace, done with a needle, and the bobbin lace, done with bobbins. Anna's notebook goes on by making a difference between lace and embroidery and what is real lace against fake lace. So, according to it, embroidery is the decoration of a piece of fabrics, while lace is the piece of fabrics itself, as mentioned, entirely created by the lace maker. And, interestingly enough, real lace is the run produced by hand, while the lace produced by a machine in the 20s from the last century was considered as not real lace. My more modern lace workbook defines lace as an ornamental work done by hand or with a machine and using several threads, but without the foundation of a piece of fabrics. And it seems that lace would have been a variation of embroidery and most precisely the right embroidery would have given birth to the lace during the 15th century when the fashion of that time required to have thinner and thinner and more and more transparent embroideries. This is basically how the needle lace would have appeared. The bobbin lace could be traced back to the antiquity and would also have developed during the, 16th, the 15th-16th centuries. However, at the beginning, bobbin lace was more linked with trimmings and stayed as the privilege of trimmers before integrating the lace makers once. Anna's notebook mentions only two ways of making lace, the needle one and the bobbins one. However, even if these are the most important and well-known ways, I found out other ways of making lace, depending on the techniques used to create it. On the top of the two previously mentioned, you can add the embroidered lace, the embroideries which gave birth to the lace, and using a piece of fabrics as support, with the example of the broderie anglaise, or the English embroidery. You have also the bobbin lace, but with continuous threads, the bobbin lace with cut threads, the mixed laces, the machine laces with maybe the best example of the lace of Calais and other types. And I don't talk about the multitude of stitches with romantic names as the stitch of Alençon, the stitch of Argentan, the stitch of France, the stitch of Bayeux, the, the stitch of Chantilly, not the same of the cream Chantilly but from the same city, the stitch Dupuis, and so Lots of French names, you would say. Does it mean that lace is of French origins? Well, as I said earlier, it's difficult to spot only one geographical zone of origins for lace. What we know is that the lace industry started to develop during the Renaissance. And here, before France, two regions had the monopoly, Italy and Flanders. And the two legends I'm going to tell you now linked with the birth of lace are somehow linked with these regions. The first legend I'm going to tell you is the legend of Serena and Arnold. 
Serena was the eldest daughter of Lady Barbara, a poor widow with five children. As the household was living in misery, every member of it had to work as much as they could. And at that time, the best way for women to earn a living was to use the spinning wheel and to sell as much as they could from their work. However, for Serena's family, each day became more and more complicated, and the family was becoming poorer and poorer. Out of desperation, one day Serena made a vow. Virgin Mary, please give me the means to save my family, and I will give up all the joy and hopes of my heart. Basically, she was giving away the love of her life to be able to make her family survive. One beautiful spring afternoon, Serena went on a stroll in the countryside with her good friend Arnold, who was sculptor apprentice. And while they were resting under an oak tree, everything started to get darker. An army of spiders just fall down on Serena's black headpiece. And from the movements of these spiders, a web started to appear, representing gracious and delicate forms as flowers and birds. Then, as fast as they appeared, the spiders disappeared, leaving our Serena puzzled. If a simple spider can create such charming design with only the thread from the Virgin Mary, why couldn't I do better with my own thin thread? Arnold tied the web created by the spiders to tree branches, and back home, Serena started to work. In the morning, after a white night trying to copy the spiders, Serena felt desperate. All her threads got mixed together. Arnold, in order to prevent the threads to tangle, tied them to a small piece of wood. The bobbin for lace just got invented. Thanks to this invention, After a few days, Serena was able to create the first laces. Arnold was drawing the motifs and Serena was following them with her threads. The laces were showcased and rich merchants came to admire them. Soon, the rumor about this new way of ornament became bigger and lace became an item thought after for which people were ready to pay a good price. And in order to meet the increasing demand, Serena trained her sisters, and her family became rich, as per Serena's vow. End of the story, you would say, right? Well, for the legend of the birth of the lace, yes. But what about Serena and Arnold? I'll try to to go fast. Arnold and Serena were in love, and once Arnold finished his his apprenticeship, he came to ask for Serena's hand. However, she refused. Remember, she made a vow. One year later, in order to celebrate the discovery of lace, Serena came back under the oak tree where the spiders appeared. She was praying the Virgin Mary to ease the sufferings of the ones she loved. As one year ago, an army of spiders appeared out of nowhere and started to craft a web on the black headpiece Serena had. The young girl looked at the web and discovered its design. It represented a bucket of a bride with, in its center, a short text reading, I am freeing you from your vow. 
As you can imagine, it was a message from the Virgin Mary liberating Serena from a promise and encouraging her to marry the one she loves. A happy and daring ride. Wondering why Netflix or Hollywood didn't make a movie about it yet. The second legend I'm going to tell you now might not be as happy as this one. This is the legend of Barbie Winkle and Gilliot's Hapkin. Is it true that the Saint Ursula is lost with all hands? Master Nicholas Fugger, Count of Hanser, looked up from his desk and saw a young woman, tall and slim, wrapped in the hooded mantle women from Flanders used to wear. She was blonde, her face was very pale and her deep blue eyes worried. It's none of your business, answered the master. Please, my lord, for pity's sake. The tone of voice of the young girl made the old ship owner shivered. Who told you that? There is a rumor in the city. People from Damas said the ship would be shortly at the market on the Quai des Marbriers, and I wanted to know, so I came to see you, the owner of the ship. Is it true, my lord? Please, tell me. Do you have any parents on board? Gilliot Sapkin, my fiancé. Master Fugger stood up and took the young girl in his arms. The Saint Ursula should have been back at the port 15 days ago for sure. However, nothing proved that the ship is lost. A storm could have delayed it. What does 15 days mean on a four-month crossing? And why those people from Dame go in the city like that spreading fake news? I will know how to make them shut up. We'll see that. Meanwhile, as I have faith, nobody has the right to lose hope. The young girl seemed revigorated by the words of Master Fugger, who, eager to end the meeting, went back to his desk, took some pieces of money, and handled them to her. However, she refused them, saying she didn't need anything, only news when he will receive some. Then, after having given him her name, Barbara Winkle, and her address, she put her hoodie back on her head, bowed, and left. The two of them were orphans, and since their childhood, Barbie Winkle and Gilliot Hapkin were in love. They were their only family. In the city of Bruges, where wealth come from all over the world piled up, those who weren't merchants were sailors. Gilliots chose the free lifestyle of the sailors and had been working for Master Fugger for eight years. Last year, as he was coming back from a long trip, Master Fugger entrusted him with the command of the center solar, his most beautiful galliot, to, to exchange Flemish products against spices from Egypt, golden clothes from Syria, and so on. And despite the supplications and premonitions of his fiancée, Gilliot's left. This will be the last trip. I want to bring you wonders, jewelry from fine gold and pearls, so that on the day of our wedding you will be the most beautiful bride, did he say. And indeed, it would be the last trip, the one from which one doesn't come back. 
And now Babe was alone with a fragile reminder of her lover, a dry seaweed with financing therations it picked up for her on a faraway beach, and that a sailor coming back from the Orient brought to her two months ago with Gilliot's last letter. Since then, the fragile seaweed remained on the, wine, on the white parchment, always under her eyes. And while Babe works by the light of her lamp, the seaweed is here, in front of her, and she feels a certain happiness by looking at it, at its fading tones, at its thin details with its infinite curves. Babe goes on working on the heavy silk of Boparinga, as she is the most famous seamstress of the city, the one able to richly ornament the outfits of the rich people of Bruges with fastious embroideries. Days and weeks passed by. The loss of the Saint Ursula made no doubt for anybody now. Babe Winkel locked herself in sorrow, willing no other comfort than the one provided by looking at the last reminder of a fiancé. However, the reminder itself was slowly disappearing. Indeed, the fragile seaweed, so many times wet by her tears and kissed by her lips, started to crumble and to turn into dust. Then, Babe got inspired on how to preserve her precious seaweed. She imagined first to tie small branches to a piece of fabric with a thread. Then, it came to her mind that she could copy its light and flexible forms to the embroideries she was ornamenting the tops of the wealthy people of Bruges with. The noble lady Isabel of Portugal, wife of His Highness the Duke Philip the Good, wanted to have some of them to ornament out court dresses. And all the court of Bruges followed her lead. However, Working with just a needle and a unique thread made Barbe's work longer and more difficult. And this is how she started using a cushion to pin and to work with several threads fastened to small wood pieces. This is how, as the legend goes, the stitch of Bruges was born. And slowly, Barbe found in her love for her work the healing of her lost love. This is the story of how a divine heart was born from human pain and how the heart of Barbe Winkle invented the lace. Two beautiful legends, right? Both born out of love, one inspired by the spiders, the other by a seaweed. A good example of the richness of nature, its endless source of inspiration. Lace a biomimicry or how to copy nature. Italy, Flanders, or the two regions, as I mentioned, where lace appeared and developed almost at the same time during the Renaissance. Starting from the 15th century, the two countries started to produce them. The first usage was done by the Catholic Church as part of their closing for religious ceremonies. At that time, the majority of the lace was made in gold, silver, and silk, a very luxurious product for very few people, of course, a symbol of elitism. Lace was then adopted by wealthy people to ornament their clothing, but not only. 
homeware as cushion covers, for example, could also use some lace. But lace, as you could imagine, was expensive because you needed time to produce it, not to mention the raw material. And seeing that some people were ready to go bankrupt for the sake of having lace on their outfits as a symbol of social success, some Italian states adopted some cherry laws to control the usage of lace. The popularity of lace in Europe started during the 16th century, when it started to export from Italy and Flanders, with the adoption of needle lace and bobin, bobin lace as the main techniques to create it. Lace makers were mostly women, first noble women using it as a pastime and then with the opening of workshops, as this example of Morosena Morosini, the wife of a doge in Venice, who in 1595 founded a lace workshop of 130 women. At that time, in Venice, lace could be produced in workshops or in convents, and lace was an important export for the state of Venice during the 16th and the 17th centuries, and the Venetian laces were used in the most fashionable item of that time, worn by everybody, men and women alike, the famous ruffs of the Renaissance, which would be replaced by collars and cravats over time. In Flanders, at more or less the same time, schools were founded to train young girls in the creation of lace, and the region became also known for its own stitches. And what about France? I wouldn't say that we took lace from the others, copied, made it better, and almost took it, took all the credits, but mm, almost. The one who introduced lace at the court of France is no other than Catherine of Medici. She's a figure coming back quite regularly in my researches when it comes to fashion history, and I'm really thinking about doing a dedicated episode about Catherine of Medici, a translator and fashionista of the Renaissance. What do you think? To come back to Catherine of Medici lace and the court of France, she got married to King Henry II in 1533, and in a dowry brought lace with her ruffles. Then we have Louis XIV, King of France, who would play an important role in the development of the French lace industry in particular. And here, I will come back to Anna's notebook to see what she has to say about that. Until with the 14th, all lace was imported either from Italy or from the Flanders. And as lace was part of the court costume and noblemen were required to wear them, there was a loss of income for the Kingdom of France. Anna wrote, quote, At the beginning of the reign of Louis XIV, the material situation in France was miserable. Colbert, who was the Minister of Finances for Louis XIV, a tireless worker, urged the working class to work. Himself was working for the love of his country. He wanted to make it richer. This is how he started to develop an interest toward lace. But the skilled statesman understood right away that he needed to proceed carefully. He managed to dominate the influence of the Venetian and Flemish lace makers, the only way to keep the money in France. Unquote. I like how it sounds like a bit of propaganda, the good minister Colbert, which is, on the other hand, not that far away from the reality. 
Earlier this year, I watched on Arte a very interesting docufiction about the birth of French luxury, entitled The Invention of the Luxury the French Way, in which you are explained about all the strategies implemented by Colbert as inviting foreign-skilled workers or industrial espionage to make everything luxury produced in France and then exported to other countries. To come back to Anna's notebook and lace, she then wrote that Colbert founded in 1665 the manufacture royal de dentelle in Alençon. He obtained a budget of 150,000 francs from the government and then invited 20 lacemakers from Flanders and 50 lacemakers from Venice to join the manufacture royal in Alençon and to train new lacemakers in the royal workshops in other, city, in other cities too. After a few years, 1,600 female workers were working there. However, it was just about imitating Flemish and Venetian lace. No originality here, just mastering the techniques, which wasn't enough, and for the ego of Colbert, and for the ego of the 14th, of course. So, in order to make the French lace different from the other laces available on the market, Colbert just asked famous painters of that time, as Lebrun, to come up with some motifs. Then, it was decided that all types of lace, needle lace and bobbin lace, produced inside the royal workshops, would be called Stitch of France. Something that Louis XIV liked a lot, and then imposed that the Stitch of France should be mandatory as part of the court costume to be worn at the court of Versailles. Clever, right? In the following centuries, the lace industry would develop in France with lace makers working in the cities and in the countryside to meet the growing demand for lace. Lace wasn't only used for clothing, but also for bed accessories. As per Anna's notebook, in 1738, the lace supplies for the bed of the Queen of France, no, it's not my Antoinette yet. She was just born a few years later in 1755, in case you were asking. Reached 30,000 livres. Big money of that time. You even add seasonality in terms of lace. Just look at the refinement of that. In 1739, were considered as winter lace, the stitch of Alençon and the stitch of Argentan and were considered as summer lace, other stitches as the Valenciennes stitch and the Malines stitch, for example. In the Rococo fashion, lace was an unavoidable ornament of clothing, both for men and women. You may now understand better why people didn't have much pieces in their wardrobes and why fashion didn't change as fast as it is nowadays. You needed lots of time to create all the lace even though I'm sure lace makers were faster than me. <laughs> and then the French Revolution happened. The lace lost its lust. Too much linked with the old regime and the elitism of classes, so against the equatorian principles of the revolution. Then, after some years, it came back, worn by everybody, mostly women as menswear, radically simplified after the French Revolution, no matter the social class. Then Napoleon arrived, and with an ego at least as big as the ego of Louis XIV, 
decided to make lace great again. First, in order to give work to the working class, and second, in order to re-establish luxury at the court and the aura of the monarchy. As Louis XIV, he also imposed lace as part of the court costume. Then, during the 19th century, as you know, technical progresses were made. This was the century of the Industrial Revolution. Lace didn't escape this. Machines were introduced to produce lace, and the introduction of lace machine in France came from England. It led to the economic boom of the city of Calais and its famous lace, the Lace of Calais. Starting from that moment, for economic reasons, lace was mostly machine-made. It was faster and cheaper. Lace stopped being a luxury product as it used to be in the past. Less rare, more affordable. Even in the headpieces I have and that I brought to my lace class, the lace in them were machine-made, according to some specialists. Specialists were there. And these headpieces were made maybe around the end of the 19th century. Italy, France, Flanders are not the only places where lace developed. At some point, every country developed its own stitch, its own particular lace, its own particular techniques, though the techniques by themselves remained similar. Spain has its own lace used in the mantilla, for example, England, Germany, Ireland, not to forget the beautiful Vologda lace from Russia, and the lace of Croatia, which is part of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity by UNESCO. However, it's true that they are all coming either from Benice or from Flanders at first. Nowadays, lace, depending on its quality, of course, is not considered as the luxury product as it used to be. If I look at fast fashion collections, I regularly see laces. As you can imagine, they are machine-made lace. The bridal wear and evening wear use also lace as the basis of their designs. Depending on the price point, it can be machine-made or handmade lace. However, handmade lace, because of the time required to create and the know-how of the lace makers involved in it, is limited to luxury fashion houses, employing small hands for their special collections. It's a know-how that slowly disappears. As Soline said during my last week with her, the majority of people who come to learn from her do it as a hobby. There are less and less professional lace makers. But at some point, more and more artist lace makers. Lace is becoming more an art now. Speaking of Soline, it's now time to share with you my lace experience. Soline studied the history of arts at the Sorbonne University in Paris, then pattern making, historical costumes, and embroidery, not to forget bobbin lace, to which she fell in love when she was a kid. The fun history is that her great grandmother was a lace maker. It's in the blood, I guess. Soline started to work for the haute couture industry. She worked at Balmain, Givenchy, and Chanel before deciding to launch her own brand, Soline Dupuis, providing design and lace and embroidery classes in Villandry, not far from Tours. 
When I arrived the first day, I explained to Celine my, my goals. I showed her my bonnets and she advised me that I start with lace and recommended me another person more specialized in the white embroidery. Before, I had no idea about the way lace was made. I thought it was more lace, the same way as embroidery, but I didn't really ask myself the question, to be honest. Soline installed the lace pillow, the bobbin, and started to show me some stitches, always explaining me, explaining me what to do and how to do. Then I was repeating and the gestures and the words until, after five days, it became an automatism. You can imagine that repeating during six hours for five days, croise, tourne, torsion, épingle, leaves some marks. Starting from the first night, I was dreaming these words, reviewing the gestures I did during the day, why I was blocking in some motives. And even now, one week after the end of this training, I am still dreaming cross-turn torsion pin. <laughs> and during the day when I don't do anything, my fingers are repeating the gestures. Lace making was like meditation, as when I draw. You escape real life. You forget everything about around you. It's difficult to start because everything seems so difficult. But it's also difficult to end. You become addicted. I became addicted to lace making. I received my bobbin this week, workbooks, workbooks to practice, and I now just need a pillow lace to get started again. And if you are looking to do something different, if you are curious about some behind the scenes of the fashion industry, if you want to better understand the richness of the knowledge this industry has, I highly recommend you such an experience. Lace, embroidery, knitting, pattern making, even if you don't plan to be a fashion designer, this type of experience is so eye-opener that it will change your perception of the clothes you wear. I already had a huge respect for all the small hands behind the glitters and glamour of, fashion, of the fashion shows, but when you experiment it by yourself, when you understand the conditions of work, the know-how involved, your respect grows bigger for them. And knowing that beginning of the 20th century, girls started to learn lace making at the age of four, would work all their life long, bended over their pillow lace, working all day, or even after their regular work day at the light of petroleum lamps in humid atmosphere, to keep the thread in good shapes, losing their sight and health for a luxury piece they wouldn't be able to buy and for which they would be paid almost nothing. Of course, today's situation is a bit different. But what about the recognition these men and women have? These small hands creating miracles with their hands? Shouldn't we know their name the same way we know the name of the designer? Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast dedicated to the story of lace. I hope it raised your interest and curiosity toward this ornament. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, to connect, with, to connect with me on Instagram and Facebook, and to have a look at my blog to complete the podcasts with some visuals. And if you like my podcast, feel free to leave a comment or a review. 
I would really appreciate it. I am Catherine, and this is my Fashion Stories Box podcast, a podcast about stories in fashion history. See you next time for a new Fashion Story Box. Thank you.